This podcast contains graphic or mature material. Depictions of violence and murder are discussed in detail in this podcast and may be triggering to some. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, Cold Case Crew. We are a group of friends who have gotten together to take a look at some of the oldest cold cases from around the Mountain State. My name is Whitney. It's Ashley. And I'm Beth. For tonight's case, we're going to be transported back to a simpler time. A time when you would least expect to hear of a violent crime, much less much less a violent crime that took place in your own rural community. The aftershock of which still remains to this day in hushed whispers about town. You know the song, We Don't Talk About Bruno? Well, that's almost what it's like trying to get information about the death of Irene Wilson. You just don't talk about it. But tonight we're going to. However, before we dive in, let's go ahead and set the scene. The year was 1963, and despite the fact that the United States would live some of its most historically important events that year, i.e. Kennedy's assassination and MLK's I Have a Dream speech, our tragic event takes place shortly after the turn of the year on January 5th, 1963. Even though the rest of the world may have been living in turmoil, fearing the effects of the Cold War, the community of Five Forks, West Virginia, in Calhoun County was much the same, comforted in the security that comes with living in a small community. Friends were neighbors, family were friends, but all that would soon change. Ladies, are you ready to dive in? I'm ready. Yes, absolutely. Irene Shomo Wilson was born Irene Shomo on July 15, 1910 in Junior, West Virginia, which is in Barber County, to Mary A. Miller and Orpha G. Shomo. She had a sister, Blanche, though not much else is known about her youth. She married Delfred Ray Wilson, and the pair went on to have three children, Charles, Helen, and Betty. They initially settled in Grant, which is in Monongalia County, before moving to Center in Calhoun County around 1935. Irene was remembered as a Christian lady who was well-liked in the community. She was short, plain, hardworking, and had no known enemies. She spent the majority of her days as a homemaker, though she once worked for a short time at the Ben Franklin Five and Dime in Grantsville, as well as Fetty's store in Pleasant Hill. At the time of her murder, Irene was employed at Fetty's store. Her husband, Delford, was employed at Robert Fabricators Company in Spencer, West Virginia, where he worked as a night watchman. This was particularly interesting to me, as Spencer is around a 47-minute drive from Five Forks today. On the day of her murder, Irene spent the afternoon working her shift at Fetty's store before returning home. Delford had since left for work, leaving Irene home by herself. All all three of the pair's children had since grown up and left the proverbial nest. There was nothing else to do but sit back and enjoy the rest of their life together. Irene had been cooking vegetables on the stove and sat down at the dining room as the meal cooked. It is there, in the comforts of the dining room of her own home, that the unthinkable happened and Irene would have never seen it coming. Around 9 p.m., when Irene failed to answer Delford's nightly call from work, he began to grow concerned. He phoned their closest neighbor, Henry Welch, who sent his two young stepdaughters, Diane, age 15, and Juanita, age 14, over to check on Mrs. Wilson. The pair set off on foot, arriving around 9.30 p.m. But as they approached the residence, something didn't seem right. Both girls confirmed that they witnessed a light near the Wilson barn at this time. The door to the residence was left open, while a plate glass storm door was closed. Through the glass window, the girls could see the lifeless body of Irene Wilson laying on the floor of the residence dining room. Frightened, the girls ran to another neighbor's home, Paul Ritchie, to call for help. Representatives from the West Virginia State Police, as well as an ambulance were called to the scene, but sadly, Irene was already gone. Why did they run to another residence instead of going back to their own home? I'm not sure. There's not a lot of information on this, and this is taken from newspaper accounts at the time. Don't you think that's a little strange? Though? Well, maybe there was like a, a neighbor that was 
closer. Maybe yeah. that was yeah. the only thing that would make sense to me. Yeah. yeah. And it was a very family-friendly community, so yeah. The body was taken to the Stump Funeral Home in nearby Grantsville. The county coroner, Dr. M. N. Malinowski, performed the autopsy. The body had been stabbed and burned about the face, hair, head, and chest. A total count of 52 stab wounds, any number of which determined fatal. It was believed that Mrs. Wilson had been seated at the time in which she was attacked. There was no evidence that she had been raped. Time of death estimated to have occurred between 5.30 and 6 p.m. Interestingly enough, Irene Wilson was 52 years old at the time of death. A stab wound for every year of life. Wow. A butcher knife was recovered from the residence and sent off to Charleston for testing, the results of which have remained under wraps to this day in 2023. Wow. That is is so sad. From everything I can gather, the butcher knife was the murder weapon, but they've never come public and said that. Yeah. Because it even says on her death certificate, you know, probably by a butcher knife. It's so sad. They still, I mean, good for them that they, they still are keeping those results under wraps and trying, but it's been so long. I mean, I guess we have no, we just don't know who did it. I don't know. The murder of Irene Wilson notably jarred the community. Prior to the tragedy, neighbors never thought of locking their doors, but subsequently it was noted that lights were installed on the perimeters of many local properties and home security measures were upped. When the investigation began, authorities worked it as a robbery gone wrong. Though money discovered on the dining room table would prove this to be a fallacy. Family members, friends, neighbors alike were all questioned with regards to the murder, but sadly the the case quickly turned cold and no significant leads were ever obtained. It is important to note that no vehicles were witnessed coming to or from the residence. This is a remote and seldom used road historically at at this time of day, and the presence of a motorist would have been unusual, but not unheard of necessarily. There have only been two primary persons of interest in the case, though if you believe town gossip, you would be quick to implicate Irene's husband, Delford Wilson. Delford was confirmed to be at work that evening, though exact movements have been kept close to the vest. Many locals report that Delford had quite the temper and had a habit of exhibiting violent behavior around town. The pair's children, however, are adamant that their father did not commit the offense against Irene. Sadly, the world may never know if Delford Wilson was truly guilty. Five months following the tragic murder, Delford succumbed to a heart attack and died in June of 1963. Oh my gosh. Those poor kids. So, but Delford called the neighbor to have them check on her. Around 9 p.m. So. And her time of death was estimated to be between 5.30 and 6, though. And what time did he go to work? See, I don't know. But you would think if you're doing a night shift, it would be, what do you think, 4 to midnight or mm, 8 probably. to midnight? No, something? it wouldn't be four hours. I mean, it, it'd be more like a 4 to midnight, I think. And then... Do you, they, I mean, do they actually think he did it? Like... A lot of people in town thought he did it. I mean, he could have staged it. Well, they said he had the, he had quite a temper. Mm-hmm. And where she was just, like, sitting down in her dining room, there was no sign of, like, a struggle or anything. Like, she trusted whoever it was. It seemed, like, very intimate, 52 stabs. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Well, usually, you know, when somebody gets stabbed that many times, it's personal. Yes. One final person of interest is referred to locals as the Yellow Creek Man, an eclectic individual who was known to make people uncomfortable by doing off-the-wall things in public. <laughs> it's been stated that the Yellow Creek Man suffered from schizophrenia, 
which would account for the bizarre and erratic behavior. Of note, it's been recalled that while frequenting a local bar, he went into the bathroom where he proceeded to cut off his own penis before flushing it down the toilet. He then came out of the bathroom, quoting scripture and preaching to the patrons of the establishment. But did the Yellow Creek man have a bout of erratic behavior, causing him to stab Irene Wilson 52 times? Oh my gosh. Okay, now I would not put anything past someone who would cut off their own member and flush it down the toilet. Yeah, I'd be curious to know more information about him. I mean, did they call an ambulance and he survived this whole episode? And See, I feel like he would be... He's doing it for the attention. You know what I mean? Like out in public. Every, it says he likes to do things in public. So that would be doing things to get attention while her house isn't in public. But that doesn't seem like a schizophrenic type thing. You know? I mean, I schizophrenics don't usually harm themselves. Yeah. What would this guy's M.O. be? I mean, yeah. he doesn't have an M.O. for her. In the years following the murder, the Wilson residence was burned to the ground a total loss. So what do you think? Was Irene Wilson brutally stabbed by her husband? Was it the Yellow Creek man? Or maybe another random intruder? I'm going to go ahead and open this up for commentary. This is the part of the podcast where we discuss theories and volley around ideas about the case. All right, ladies, let's dive in. Not much to go on, but... Means, motive, and opportunity, the three key elements to any crime. First up, what do you believe the motive of the crime to be? This is hard. This is very hard because, I mean, she was a a sweet lady. A Christian lady. A Christian, sweet Christian lady that everyone in town liked. It's going to have to be either some strange person from out of town that stumbled upon the residence. And, I mean, their residence was kind of out of the way, right? Yeah, it was out. And sticks. Like, so it could have been some strange part. I kind of tend to not lean towards the Yellow Creek man. No, he's just some nut job that. Yeah, I think, he, I think it's just easy to. It's easy point to put that at him. Him, yeah. on him. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I mean, we don't know enough about her marriage or the husband or. I mean, all we know is that he had erratic behavior or he was. We basically know that the husband had a temper. That's all we have on him. There's really not very much to go on on this case. However, I always thought this case was really interesting, which is why I felt like we should just go ahead and present it because, I mean, what a story, right? I mean, it. first of all, the fact that they've kept a lot of this evidence under lock and key for all these years, that yeah. makes me wonder. That's a testament to the police department. Yeah. And that good for them. Good job. But it's like, why have they done that? They Do they think the person's still out there? Because, I mean, the husband's passed away. So, and what happened with their, how did their house burn down? Was that like, was it, did somebody do it? Or was it electrical fire? I mean, like, what happened? There's so many questions here. Yeah, again, I have no information on that. That happened six years after. So I would say new owners took possession. It burned down like there's just nothing it's a field now um with this going back to like who what might be a motive of the crime i definitely feel like the fact that she was sitting in her dining room table in her home that it's presumed that the 
At least what is believed to be the murder weapon is a butcher knife that would have come from the home. It seems like it would have been somebody that was like familiar with Irene, familiar with the household. Someone she trusted because she was just sitting there when they came in. She obviously had company. Mm-hmm. Because there was no sign of forced entry to the residence. Well, she's not the type of woman that's like having an affair on her husband or anything like that, right? Not that not that we have any information on now. Yeah. Like, based on what we do know, no. Um, who, if anybody, do you believe had the means and opportunity to commit this sad offense? We've kind of touched on that, but somebody that she knew. It would have... I mean, that's really all you can go by. Mm -hmm. And then diving into her victimology, would you consider her a low or high-risk victim? Absolutely low. Yeah, very low. Yeah. The biggest key to this case is the crime scene. What can we deduce given the information presented to us about the scene and the way Irene was found? Again, somebody had to be let in the home. Either that or they just came in because nobody locked their doors. Well, it wasn't premeditated. It doesn't seem like it was. Because, you know, a baby... Someone just walked in the door and maybe they wanted something or needed food or who knows. I mean, since they're back in a, you know, house that's back in the woods, you know, what if somebody just wandered in there and they didn't get what they wanted? She told them to get out. They grabbed a knife and went to town on her. Maybe it was one of the neighbors. Wasn't the barn light on? Yeah, there was a light near the barn when the girls walked up. Which apparently was never on because that's what concerned those like, neighbor girls. I took it as like there was, well, this is the 60s. I took it as it was like a lantern or something. Like somebody had a light. Maybe the neighbors needed to borrow something. Yeah, and then she wouldn't give it to them. Or she did and she invited them in for some coffee. A cocktail. And then <laughs> something just went really wrong. Do you guys have anything else you want to comment? Hopefully they come out with more information on this case and we can keep updating the case but it would be nice if we could i I mean you know get in touch with some of the people that are investigating it i'm assuming it's still like one of those cold cases Mm -hmm. the west virginia cold case unit that kind of looks into that stuff but i mean i would i would like to know more about it I really would. And I do want to um, just give a nod to, there's a local newspaper called the Her Herald, and they have been kind of keeping this story alive. And that's where a lot of this information came from, was from their website that they have with the articles. That's amazing mm-hmm. because a lot of newspapers don't really do that. I believe it's just an online syndication, but still, like, I think it's great that that information's available because, like I said, there's really not very much information on this case. And and it's sad because it's been, what, 60 years this year. It has been 60 years since the brutal murder of Irene Wilson and her case is still cold. If you or anyone you know has any information regarding the murder of Irene Wilson, please contact the Ivy Dell Detachment of West Virginia State Police at 304-286-3185. Sadly, this concludes Season 2 for the Cold Case Crew. Join us next time when we get together to discuss some of our favorite cases in our bonus episode, CCC Unscripted. What's your theory?